As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. What does it mean to have hope? Ask an earnest theologian, ask a secular psychologist, ask a dreamy songwriter. They'd all have different answers. But I think we'd all agree that hope is very important indeed. Does brain science back up this airy generalization? Professor Tali Sharot of University College London thinks so, and her view is backed up by the brain scanning experiment she conducted with volunteers. The naked scientist Kat Arney took up the story in the show Outpacing Petrol. Looking on the bright side of life can be very important as a way of dealing with really serious life events like a major illness, uh, divorce, being a victim of crime. But in other ways, it can be quite damaging because mistakenly believing that your chances of a specific event happening to you are much lower than they actually are can influence your behaviour. For example, if you think you have a very low chance of developing cancer, you might not quit smoking or, for example, not practising safe sex or even not saving for your retirement. As Tali Sharot implies, hope is not a straightforward thing. That's why Miranda's hopeful vision in The Tempest, oh brave new world that has such creatures in it, could become the seed of Aldous Huxley's title for his famous dystopian novel. With me to discuss hope are the social psychologist Dr Kitty Alone, a research fellow here at the Wolf Institute and a regular contributor to Naked Reflections, and Professor Andrew Shignell of Princeton University, who has written about the moral psychology of hope in philosophy and religion. Let's start with this question, Andrew. What is the difference between hope and optimism? In some sense, I think people use these words synonymously. I'm optimistic that the car will start. I hope that we'll have a nice dinner tonight. And interestingly, in the Greek tradition, the word elpis does actually seem to cover both sorts of states. More recently, though, I think we've started to distinguish between the two, where optimism really does require some confidence that something that you want is going to come about. So I'm optimistic that 
I'll make it to my meeting later on today. I'm optimistic that the car will start. Hope tends to now be used to refer to things for which we don't have that kind of confidence. So yes, I hope that the car will start, but I'm also confident, I'm optimistic, so I wouldn't say that I hope for it. What we hope for and what we express hope for are typically the things about which we're not so confident. So is hope to a certain extent delusional? Well, that can go along with it. So the Greeks and the Romans, when they fixed on this notion of hope, the sort of clinging kind where you're not sure about the possibilities, they were typically against it. So, you know, Pandora releases her curses uh, from the box and the last thing remaining is hope. A lot of people interpret that as hope is the worst curse of all and it sticks around and tortures us. You know, certainly that's Nietzsche's reading. But yeah, hope can be a bad thing insofar as it makes us continue to fix on some outcomes that are just really unlikely or that can take our attention away from the outcomes that are much more probable. On the other hand, hope can have this incredible sustaining power in our psychology. And you know, Kitty will be able to say much more about this than I can. But I think there is a role for rational hope. And we just have to figure out what those constraints on it are. I think that's over to you, Kitty, don't you? Well, yes. I mean, the question you first raised, actually, is fascinating. And Andrew's ex- explained extremely well. You asked the really fascinating question, too, which is, is it just delusional? Well, that is a very interesting question. And then unfortunately, it's not one that I can comprehensively answer. But research seems to suggest that when it comes to things like optimism and hope, which I'm going to do the thing that we were just told not to do, which is use them synonymously, it can be beneficial. So for example, it's an excellent coping mechanism. In terminal patients, it's been found to sort of correlate with a much higher degree of life satisfaction. So in terms of health outcomes, well-being outcomes, optimism slash hope can be a very good thing. What is conceived of as being a less positive thing is this like Panglossian sort of view of the world, where it's almost optimistic to the point of irrationality. So there's been fascinating work done by Tali Sharot, among others, on positive illusions. And it's a general human tendency that people think of themselves in more positive terms than they are actually warranted to do so. So I think I used a couple of podcasts ago this idea that everybody getting married sort of has fairly optimistic outlooks on their marriage. But however, the sobering statistics suggest that 34% of marriages are expected to end in divorce by the 20th wedding anniversary. But nobody thinks that to be true of them once they get married, or at least you'd hope not. Otherwise, what would be the point? So yes, in a sense, optimism slash hope, which again, I'm using incorrectly and interchangeably, they're buffering, if you like, they buffer us from the cold, brutal truth of what might be the future. But looking through rose-tinted glasses, being quite Pollyanna-ish, is perhaps not in itself a bad thing. That seems right. I mean, I think Pollyanna-ish can come in degrees, but I think for the most part, it's useful psychologically to have hope, even when it can be somewhat distracting from the realities of the situation. What you wouldn't want to do, though, is be somebody who's so fixed on what you're hoping for that you don't pay attention and take precautions. So if I just hope to win the lottery, you know, I buy a yacht on credit because I'm just fixed on this outcome that I'm hoping for. That does look delusional and problematic. Can we tease out this question of the difference between hope and belief now? I'm just thinking about, it's not enough for me to say, for example, I hope there's a God. As a person of faith, it's just not enough. But yet I think I hear you both saying that hope is a key part of the human condition. In the terms of religion, it isn't enough. Faith, hope, and love, right? 
I mean, faith, hope, and love in the New Testament look like three different things, three different objects. You're right that faith is taken to be something stronger, something a little bit more like belief, though not your ordinary everyday beliefs, but rather something that involves a kind of existential commitment and maybe a bit of a leap, but it's still a sort of saying yes to the truth of something. Whereas hope looks like you're saying yes, that it's possible, but you just don't know whether it's true. And that I think is a rather different attitude. I'm actually tempted by the idea, I think it's Kant's view actually maybe, that hope can be sufficient, at least in the dark nights of the soul, to still count as a genuinely robust religious stance. So the sufficiency of hope, at least sometimes, is a topic that I think is worth considering. And it's interesting that um, if you read something like Dante, for example, when you reach the gates of hell, the first thing you're told to abandon is not faith or love, it's hope. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. So it's obviously integral and crucial to particularly Christianity spirituality. And it does have a very nuanced and mercurial relationship with belief, which is fascinating because it gives researchers sort of plenty of fuel to dig around into. So it's a very, very interesting area. It'd be interesting to ask a Jewish person, you know, do you hope that the Messiah will come or do you believe that the Messiah will come? You know, any religious person, do you hope for an afterlife or do you really believe that there is an afterlife? You can sort of feel the difference. But you wonder, does it really matter if they say they just hope? It's interesting from a Jewish point of view, I think you could say both constructively, I hope the Messiah will come. I hope there will be a messianic age. And I believe there will be a messianic age. I believe the Messiah will come. But you couldn't say that about the Almighty. So there seems to be a difference between the one in tradition who the who is sent by the Almighty or in Christian tradition who's going to return than the actual belief in God. And I don't know if that also plays into some of the work that you're doing, Andrew, in terms of the sort of moral psychology of hope. And actually, you mentioned Kant. That's your training, indeed. And it was Kant who, to a certain extent, rediscovered the importance of hope for the modern period. Right. So Kant, as I was suggesting, may be open to the thought that, at least in the dark nights of the soul, merely hoping that God exists and believing that it's possible can still count as sufficient for not just being authentically religious, but also for engaging in collective action projects and efforts to kind of make things better, even when you're not sure that you'll make a difference. One of the things I'm interested in taking it out of the religious context is just the way in which hope to have some effect in the world, whether as activists or scholars or just kind of members of communities, is really important, or whether sometimes there's a kind of desperation or a giving up on hope that helps to motivate genuine, desperate action. You know, people in the streets protesting against systemic racism, which they have in some sense lost hope will ever disappear. But that kind of desperation can also push people. So I'm interested in the psychology of hope and despair as it relates to moral agency and activity. Kit, you're a social psychologist and this sort of hope despair axis, if you like, that Andrew's proposed, where do you sit there? It's an amazing area to sort of be able to look into. And I think particularly in sort of modern politics, hope is something that's come to the forefront. And the iconic image, obviously, is the Obama poster with the word hope underneath. 
But empirical studies have shown that hope leads to greater support for things like social change, support for climate policy, support for policies and actions promoting peace. So hope is an integral component of what you might call a democratic sort of political mindset. And it's interesting that the first word that they were going to use on the Obama poster wasn't hope, actually. It was progress. And apparently that had negative connotations. So the word hope was chosen instead. And what it makes me think is you see Obama's face in the iconic sort of hopeful position. So if you talk about the physicality of hope, it's that idea of the head being lifted, looking beyond forward. And in terms of recognisable emotion, I personally would be very interested to know at what age and development children can recognise that as hope. Because as Tally Schwartz was saying, hope is so complex and so nuanced. I would imagine that for children to accurately be able to say that is a hopeful person or that person is emoting hope would be quite late on in development. But in terms of social psychology, yes, hope is an important component of what you might call particularly the liberal left or a democratic worldview. And the interesting question, I suppose, is to what extent does hope play a role in more conservative politics? Is it still as important? That would be certainly something that would interest me in terms of this dichotomy between or the polarisation between conservatives and Democrats in the US particularly is what is the role of hope? How do they perceive it on either side? That's really interesting. I wonder what you make of the fact that very progressive side, or at least elements of it, is now opposed to hope talk as well. So they worry that it's a kind of panacea. You get Greta Thunberg saying, I don't want your hope. I want your desperation. And then I want you to act. She's explicitly said that in quite a few places. Or, you know, there's this Afro-pessimist movement that thinks that in some ways Obama promised a lot and talked a lot about hope and change. But here we are and George Floyd and so forth still happening. So what we need is pessimism and despair, and that leads to agency on the streets. So this up-and-coming sort of despair-driven movement is quite interesting, particularly for me from the point of a motivational psychology. One of the things that is often sort of claimed about hope is that it promotes motivation. It gives people a driving force. So if you have a movement that is aiming to act to improve, for example, climate change or racial justice, what does that do to people's motivation within that movement if you take away hope and instead ground everything in despair. Despair traditionally sort of is quite demotivational. So yes, for me, that's the interest. It's this idea of the motivational force of hope. Despair and desperation have the same root, and yet they feel now in contemporary English quite different. So acting or agency out of despair just sounds sort of weird, but acting out of desperation, that sounds like something we've seen and has a real power. A case that philosophers often talk about is the, you know, the Shawshank Redemption movie, you know that film, Two Prisoners, Andy and Red. On the film poster, it says, you know, one hopes and the other despairs. So the thought is they both think it's possible to get out. They both, of course, very much want to get out, let's say. But now here we have to set aside race politics and incarceration in America, which plays a big role, I think, in who is hopeful and who is not. But Andy somehow focuses on the possibility and that motivates his digging behind the toilet every night to try to find the way out. Whereas Red, for whatever reason, thinks it's possible, wants it, but can't allow himself to hope. So he's always focused on how unlikely it is. We're never going to get out. It won't work. And he despairs. And you do see, at least in that fable, that the hopeful person is motivated and the despairing person is left behind. Whether there's a more complicated story to tell about 
how despair can sometimes really motivate is I think what Kitty and I are getting at here and what's really interesting about this moment in somewhat despairing politics. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Kitty Alone and Andrew Chignell. We're discussing the concept of hope. And hopefully I can chip in too. Let's go back to our brain scientist, Tali Sherrott. Her thoughts were summarised on the Naked Scientist podcast by Kat Arney. Financial experts are known to underestimate risks and be over-optimistic about potential profits. This may be some kind of uh, the subconscious reluctance of the financial world to accept the real risks of their investments. It may have unwittingly led to the current financial crisis. In that show from The Naked Scientist, Tali was looking back at the financial crash of 2008. And that clip raises the question of whether optimism or hope can be naive and delusional. And we've touched on that. Why is it that politicians, for example, are are constantly talking about hope to us, that things will get better, whether it's about COVID, whether it's about the economy? But yet, are we believing in hope less and less? Are we falling into the despair camp more and more? And it sounds like we are. Now, Andrew, I wonder if you could pick up on that because you've written about the ethics of eating. And is that more about hope or about desperation? I mean, I think you're right that politicians like to talk about hope. And I also think you're right to say that it can lead to dangerous delusions. So I'm not sure that policymakers should be Maybe they should be inculcating or encouraging hope in citizens. I'm not sure they should be making decisions driven mostly by hope in the ethics of eating context. So there I'm interested in the psychology of activism, people who want to see changes to, for instance, the industrial agriculture system. And they're feeling a kind of impotence or inefficacy. So suppose you're a vegan and you care about animals and you want to see that system change. The numbers are just gigantic. 60 billion land animals every year across the world are harvested in industrial agriculture context. If you count the sea creatures, it's, you know, nobody really knows. And you think about, well, if I don't order the um, hamburger here today, is that going to make a difference? Is that going to affect anything? And the real answer is almost certainly not. The system has room for all sorts of buffers and there's tolerance for waste and slack and so forth. And your orders, maybe even your orders and purchases over a whole lifetime may not make any empirical difference at all. So then the question is, what are we hoping for as consumers, as individuals? Is it just, okay, well, we should go collective and start doing things with as many people as possible to try to you know, politically change things? Yes, that's true. But what does that mean for our individual consuming and choosing practices. And there, I think hope can play an important role. Kitty, can hope be taught or is it learned? Well, that is an excellent question, Ed. I think if you're of a religious persuasion, or particularly within Christianity, it is hope is so inherent to Christian teaching that, yes, it can be taught. It can be sort of held up as this great moral virtue that you should live your life by. question of whether hope is a trait or not is quite interesting. I would suggest that optimism is a trait, whereas hope is more like an emotion. And there's very interesting work on that in the psychology literature. Can it be taught? The answer is like, I don't know. I mean, I think there are so many factors involved in sort of assessing a situation. So 
I'm quite a pessimistic person, I would say, and I always tend to look on the downside. And my assumption is, well, if you do that, you can never be disappointed. But of course, that's not true. You're just continually disappointed. Can I be taught to be hopeful? It's interesting. I don't know. Do I feel hopeful about the coronavirus pandemic? As we were saying earlier, this idea of can I be hopeful but believe it not to be true? Well, yes, I hope that things get better. I hope that the economy bounces back. I hope that life goes back to normal. Do I believe that to be the actual case? Probably not. But even though I don't believe it, it doesn't stop me from hoping for it to be true. And the alternative is, as we've talked about, this sort of discrepancy or this this dichotomy between hope and despair. So without hope is the only other option available despair, in which case I'll go with hope because despair is so sort of utterly existentially draining that I I can't face that. So if it's a choice between despair and hope, then I'm on the side of hope. I was going to say, I think Kitty's got exactly the reasonable position, which is hopeful pessimism, or at least hopeful realism. We should allow the evidence to determine what we actually believe is going to happen or is the case. But there's also an important psychological role for hope to play at the same time. So once we've distinguished between hope and optimism, then we can say we are hopeful pessimists. And that makes sense rather than just sounding incoherent. (laughs) I struggle with that. Here we are, three teachers, you know, the research that we're doing in different parts of the world where the three of us are trying to foster better understanding about certain issues, trying to improve society. Surely one of our expectations, if not aspirations, is that the work that we do actually makes the world a better place. So how is it possible to be optimistic pessimist or hopeful pessimist, as as you've just said, where actually we're in an institutional environment that is not optimistically pessimistic, but is actually optimistic, no? I mean, or isn't that undermining what we're about? I don't think so. At least how I personally see the work that I do. Do I believe it to have some kind of direct impact on the world? Possibly not. But the alternative is that I don't do that work and there's no way that we'll ever find out. Well, let's ask one or two, I don't know, rigorous questions of hope. Andrew, can we measure it? You're asking the philosopher whether we can measure it. (laughs) (laughs) In this multi-year project that I was involved in called the Hope and Optimism Project, we interacted quite a bit with psychologists. And I'm curious what Kitty would say about this. But they do seem to really think it's important to find a measure. And that, as far as I could tell, goes by way of asking a series of questions that are perfectly calibrated to somehow identify that state or trait rather than other neighboring ones. And then you've got somebody like C.R. Snyder, who is the famous hope psychologist who has the hope scales, and he's able to rate people on this scale and then correlate hoping with all sorts of other behaviors. So I guess we can measure it because we do. It's not something that I think the philosophers are very good at. Kitty, I mean, you've been doing this work, haven't you? Here you've heard Andrew's uh, sort of response, sort of, you know, ducking and weaving, as it were. Well, this is one of the fantastic things about the Hope and Optimism Project that Andrew was involved with. They were very much looking at ways to measure it. And I think as in anything, as like anything in psychology, the way you measure something is going to be driven by the way you define it. So Snyder, who Andrew mentioned, very much has sort of an expectancy-based view of hope. And that has sort of dominated the psychological literature for quite some time, this idea that hope is an expectancy-based construct. But there are new emerging scholars coming through who sort of argue that that's not necessarily true. And again, it links back to our early conversation about this idea that um, 
expectancy isn't necessarily inherent in hope. So for some, Michael Malona, who worked with Andrew on the Templeton Project, has a very interesting perception theory of hope, where it is not sort of expectancy based. And I think this is really what the psychological literature needs, is a much more fine grained definition of what we mean when we're talking about hope. One that will allow us to have much more nuanced and robust measurement tools. We argued about this quite a bit. I have a little theory of hope according to which it's not so much a perception, but a separate disposition to focus. So it's not in perceiving that you find the hope, but in this willingness to, as I was saying before, attend to or focus on the thing as possible instead of focusing or attending to it as improbable or impermissible or risky or something like that. So I'm really interested in the ethics of attention in how we learn to cultivate, you know, and here I'll use the word mindful, you know, somewhat tentative way, how we mindfully learn to cultivate our attention such that when it's appropriate, learn to hope or have the ability to hope instead of falling into despair. Kitty, do you feel that hope is something that's innate? I think it must have or have had some kind of evolutionary adaptiveness to it. Think of it this way. Say you have two small bands of hunter-gatherers stuck in a perilous situation. One has, I don't know, a nominal leader who is full of despair. The other has a nominal leader who is full of hope. The chances are that the hopeful group would survive, therefore go on and pass their genes, et cetera, et cetera, than the despairing group. I mean, that's not based in any kind of empirical study, but it's just an assumption. What do we mean by saying something is innate? That's something that I'm not going to be drawn into, but I think it probably is a hallmark of human cognition to be hopeful. I mean, you think about our, our history as a species, we would never have left Africa had there not been some hope that there might be something beyond the horizon, some way of carrying on outside of our sort of physical framework. So it's a very interesting question. I would say, if I'm being bold, I'd say yes. And the other thing is, when you think about these um, questions of human universals, is does hope exist in other species? And as far as I'm aware, it doesn't. I think it's probably quite a defining feature of human emotion and cognition. I think you're erring on the side of optimism there, Kitty. I'm pleased to hear. You've taught me it. <laughs> What about philosophically, Andrew, the existential element of hope? Is this something that you would feel comfortable with? I think it's really good that we're getting beyond greeting card sentiments and political slogans when we talk about hope. We're making important distinctions, but also thinking about the existential import of having these sorts of states rather than just throwing them around in slogans. I mean, if you view hope as just a kind of desire combined with a sense that the outcome is possible, then that seems like it must be just part of our basic architecture cognitively. I mean, in my own little view, I add this focus condition. You have to have the desire and the belief that it's possible and be disposed to focus on it as possible. But that still also seems relatively minimal in terms of human psychology. And so I think probably the ability is built in. The question is, you know, can we control it? Can we cultivate it? Ought we to avoid it? When should we restrict it? Kant's question is, what may I hope? And the question is, you know, what's rational to hope, not just what can I hope? There, I think the 
Christian and Jewish traditions come apart a little bit from the Greek and Roman tradition in an interesting way. Um, and maybe we're seeing this again in the contemporary debate. But, you know, Aristotle, hope is the dream of a waking man. Seneca says that hope and fear are like two prisoners shackled to one another. You know, they kind of go together, the two sides of the same coin. You know, a mind in suspense that hopes and fears. And instead, what we should cultivate is a kind of stoic appreciation of what actually is. Even, you know, in the Hebrew tradition, there is hope and there's messianism and so forth. But then there's also a willingness to say that sometimes you have to move forward even in the absence of hope. So Job says, even though he slays me, I may have no hope, but I will argue my case before him. So there's a sense of justice, even without hope as something that can motivate. So I think these questions are very complicated in the tradition as well as in today's political psychological landscape. But this general tension between the benefits of hope as it brings us along and lets us you know, move into the future and the dangers of hope and the irrationalities of hope have been with us from the very beginning of the discussion. It's interesting because that quote you gave us from Job can also be translated that I have no hope in him. I mean, the Hebrew allows for these diametrically opposed translations. So the King James Version and the, the uh, Revised Version have completely opposite translations. So even within the text itself, we can be both hopeful and have no hope. But there we must leave it. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. But many thanks to my guests, Andrew Chignell and Kitty Alone. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. You can contact us at the Wolf Institute by email or on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. We've covered a wide range of subjects, which you can find by delving into our back catalogue. And it's worth checking out our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land from Arab to Zion. All you need to know about the Holy Land in bite-sized chunks. You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections or wherever you access your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests.